Good morning, everyone. He is risen. It's so good to hear you say that. This time last year, we were all in our homes by ourselves or with our families. And we were reminded last year that we could celebrate the resurrection of Jesus even when circumstances kept us apart. But what a joy it is to be called together this morning as the Church of Jesus Christ to celebrate the fact that our Savior Jesus is risen. We're also so excited this morning uh, to celebrate the ordinance of Christian baptism, and we're going to have several uh, children and uh, young young folks who are going to be baptized this morning, and I'm just so grateful to be able to share that together. So we're going to look now into God's Word and speak about the resurrection, speak about the glory of Jesus shown in His work of salvation that's accomplished for us. But before we begin, I want to begin thinking this morning and focusing by asking us a question. If you've got your outline, it'll be helpful for you to take your outline and look there. I just want to ask the question, in light of all the things that we deal with, we're here this morning from many different locations, many different things going on in our lives, many different backgrounds, and I just want to ask the question of all the things that are going on in our lives, is any of this really worth it? And by this, what I mean, I mean the hardships of life. I mean the difficult questions of life. We're in here and we come from different age groups, but I think there's generally three categories of age groups we fall into. Many of you in here are older, you're seasoned veterans of life, and maybe you're in a place where you're looking back on things. It's that time in life where you're reflecting and you're thinking back about the ways that you lived your life. You're pondering whether all of this was worth it. Maybe you're questioning, maybe even here as a believer, you're questioning whether all of this that you've given your life to in following Jesus, was all of this really true? Was that really what you should have staked your life on? Others of us, maybe we're here, we're kind of in that middle season of life, we're in that middle age of life, we're getting older, maybe some of us have lost parents, maybe some of us are soon to lose parents. We ourselves are getting certain diagnoses, We're hearing of others who are getting diagnoses. It's a difficult season, or it can be. Maybe we're in a place of difficulty in our parenting or in our marriage, and we're wondering, is all of this worth it? Should we persevere in these things? Or should maybe we just abandon what's going on, move away from the difficulty, and just try to seek some happiness in these last few decades that we have? Or maybe you're here and you're younger, and you see the way the world is going, and you know the things that you've been taught by your parents, by your grandparents about Jesus and what it means to follow him, and and maybe you're realizing that the way the world is right now, that's going to cost you something. And you're wondering, will that be worth it? Tim Keller, in his fantastic book, The Reason for God, in his chapter on the resurrection, he has a fantastic quote by Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian author, It's there in your outline. Tolstoy says this. This is from a work that he wrote called A Confession. He says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? 
that question or some form of it comes to all of us. Those of you who are younger, you've got a lot going on in your life. Maybe you've got school, you're finishing up school. Maybe you're in that early season of life where there's so much going on and there's so much excitement that maybe you haven't come to that place, but you will come to that place. Those of us who are older know that place, reflecting on life and wondering, is any of this worth it? Does anything here really matter? There's good in the world and there's joy and the experience of it is great, but it fades over time. No matter what you are spared in terms of the suffering and difficulty of life as you age, it will come to you in some degree or another. And the question is, does anything make any of this worth it? The Apostle Paul, he wrestles with this question and he recognizes that it's a real dilemma. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 20, he says this of us as Christians. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we above all people, or we are to be pitied above all. We're to be most pitied. But look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul understood that if Jesus isn't alive, we, have, we as Christians are to be pitied. But he says Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that changes everything. That changes how we view the world. It changes how we view the experiences of our lives, even our very suffering, even seasons of difficulty. This morning, we're going to be looking into a letter that Paul wrote to his young co-worker, Timothy, and seeing that Paul recognized that Jesus' resurrection does change how we view the world. It does change how we view suffering. And it's an exhortation from Paul to this young man that he would continue to endure in suffering, that he would do so hopefully, and that he would continue to follow Jesus and share the good news about Jesus with others. Friends, all of this All of the things that you have experienced in your life, they have been worth it because Jesus is alive, because he is risen from the dead. Let's pray together now and let's read God's word then. Father, I give you thanks for the gathered assembly of your church. I thank you that we are here in person this morning, Lord. I'm so thankful for the beautiful day that you've given to us, Lord. Thank you that even as we drove in and saw the blooming of azalea bushes, Lord, it's this picture of renewal, But Father, when we see that in the spring and there's this natural response to it of joy and hopefulness, we are reminded of the truth of your word, that the grass withers and the flower fades. It is only the word of the Lord that endures forever. And so Father, it is your word that gives us the good news about your son, Jesus, and that he is alive. So Father, this morning, I thank you for the great privilege of being able to speak your word to your people Father, we recognize together that it is only your word that gives us strength and gives us hope. So Lord, as we read the word together, as it's proclaimed, would you take its truth and apply it to us? Lord, for those of us here who maybe are not certain about what we know about Jesus or whether we've put our trust in Jesus, would you give assurance that Jesus, what he has done for us, can, we can rest in that? Would you, any who, is not, who are not here, Lord, who have not trusted Jesus, would you bring them to that place For those of us who have, Lord, would you give us assurance and would you encourage our hearts? We give you thanks this morning, Lord. Thank you that we can meet together in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray all that in his name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of 2 Timothy. The focus of our time this morning is going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, just three verses. 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10. 
I want to read those verses aloud and then we'll work our way through and see what Paul is saying to Timothy and then therefore how we can apply these things in our own lives. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning as his people on this Resurrection Sunday. Maybe he bless its reading, may he bless its proclamation. I want you to see that there is an exhortation there, and that's where we're going to start off there, looking at verse 8. But I just want you to see these words. They come within an important letter. If we don't know much about this letter, we can study this section and we can understand some things that are are being said, but we're going to miss something if we don't understand the fullness of what's going on in Paul's life. This is the last letter of Paul's that he writes. It's written to probably his closest co-worker, a young man that he invested in his life, who he developed for ministry, who he had spent many, many years with. He had spent nights in prayer with this young man. He had entrusted his ministry, and in places, uh, especially in the city of Ephesus, to this young man, Timothy. This is Paul's last communication to someone he loves very dearly. And just think about what you would say to someone if it was the last thing that you were ever going to say to them someone that you had loved very dearly, that you had invested your life in, what would you say? You would say the most important things. And so when we hear these words from Timothy, or from Paul to Timothy, we need to understand the seriousness of what is being said. He is saying things that he wants Timothy to keep in mind and in his heart that are gonna form and shape him for the rest of his life. It's gonna be the most significant things that Paul himself has learned and he's passing on. Last words are important words, and these are some of the last words Paul gives to Timothy. In the context here, it's an exhortation to remember the resurrection of Jesus, something that's going to be incredibly important in Timothy's preaching and teaching, but it's not just for the congregation, it's for Timothy himself. And so when we hear these things, we need to think of us collectively, but we also need to think of ourselves what is being said to us? What, is, what do these truths mean to me? What does it mean that Jesus is my Savior, that he has been resurrected? He's encouraging Timothy. The goal of this letter is to encourage Timothy to endure hardship. And the context here, he's saying this right before he's going to exhort Timothy. It's after he's told Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier, and it's before he's going to talk about the difficulties of ministry that lie ahead for him. He focuses here in these verses on the resurrection of Jesus. So let's make three big points, three big observations this morning. The first is this. Paul exhorts Timothy to remember the resurrection of Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. This word remember, it's an imperative. It's a command. He's saying, Timothy, you must remember Jesus and remember that Jesus is alive. He's directing this towards Timothy because he wants Timothy to hold this truth in mind, to keep it in his heart, that Jesus is alive. And this is central to everything that Paul has been doing. It's central to Timothy's ministry, but it's central to what it means for him to be a Christian. 
your arrow there, the resurrection. It's, it, the resurrection of Jesus is central to the message of the gospel. Often when we talk about the gospel, we rightly focus on the death of Jesus. That's what we did Friday. We came together for Good Friday and we read the account of the crucifixion and we focused on the importance of what that means for us, that Jesus dies in our place for our sin. He takes the punishment that we deserved. It's put on him. We were sinners. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus was sinless. He receives the wrath of God in our place. But the gospel in many ways is incomplete without the resurrection. And so Paul here, he's telling Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's what makes Jesus' death good news. When you read about the death of Jesus in the Gospels, initially, it is not good news. His followers are distraught. They do not know what to do. They're overwhelmed. It's the resurrection that makes the death of Jesus good news. The resurrection, it's the ultimate confirmation that Jesus was who he claimed to be. If you're here and in some ways you're skeptical of these things, or you, do, you think dead people don't rise, that's this is not what happens. That's exactly why Jesus' resurrection is unique. That's exactly what God is doing there. He's confirming that in everything Jesus said, especially that Jesus claimed, as we saw last week in our study of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus had the authority to forgive sin, that truth is confirmed through the resurrection. That Jesus' work on the cross is acceptable to God the Father. The word risen here, it's in the perfect tense. It's showing that it's a completed action with ongoing implications. Jesus is risen. And it's not just a fact that stands apart from things. It has implications for his people. Jesus is alive. Paul makes the resurrection here central to the gospel message. And you need to just think about this. If you're you're a person here who's skeptical in some ways, this helps confirm the historical nature of the resurrection. Paul, in, throughout his letters, references the resurrection. And he's writing, Galatians is probably written within the 40s or early 50s AD. So less than a couple of decades after Jesus died. Every, a lot of people who witnessed it, who saw Jesus resurrected, who saw the empty tomb, you could go and try to fact check and verify if you wanted to. And so for Paul to make these claims, it's an argument for the historical reality that Jesus is alive. And that is what we must deal with. If, if you're here and maybe you, you, you know your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith or you know people who are believers and you think, well, that's great for them, but I'm just not sure. What do you do with the fact of an empty tomb? That Jesus truly did rise from death. We have to reckon with that and we will reckon with that either in this life or the next. Jesus is alive. That's central to everything Paul preaches and teaches. The other thing we need to see is that the resurrection, it, 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 the resurrection of Jesus completed the work of salvation that he came to accomplish. Jesus, uh, Paul references here, he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the descendant of David or descended from David? Okay? In doing that, one of the things that he's doing there, the offspring of David, what he's doing there is he's connecting and talking about Jesus' true humanity, that Jesus takes on real humanity and comes into our world. He really lives a human life. He really has physical descendants through his mother. He shares true humanity with us. And yet he does that in order that he might die, that he might die in our place. His death is the beginning of his work of salvation. He dies, he sheds his blood as the sinless savior. 
In his death, he also, though, shares the experience of being separated from God. We don't have time to go into this this morning. We talked about it last year around Easter time. We were doing a doctrinal study on uh, the Apostles' Creed, and we looked at the clause in the Apostles' Creed that he descended to the dead. I think that is a significant part of the work of Jesus that is underappreciated. Jesus dies, but he's not just hanging out in the grave for a day waiting to rise again. He's going to the Old Testament place of the dead. It's referred to as paradise by Jesus in one of his parables. It's referred to as a shale in the Old Testament or Abraham's side, Jesus says in one of his parables. He goes there and he delivers the Old Testament saints. Now, they weren't held there in judgment. He, didn't, he doesn't descend into hell and give people a second chance. He goes and rescues the righteous dead. That's part of his work. But don't miss that for us, your Savior Jesus experienced suffering. He experienced physical suffering on the cross, but he experienced the general sufferings of life as well. He was part of a family. He dealt with relational strife. He dealt with people who did not like him who were his enemies. And then he does ultimately experience physical death. If you're here and you're older and your death is imminent, and in some sense, all our deaths are imminent, but those of you who are older, take comfort in the fact that your Savior Jesus went before you in death and he experienced being separated from the body for a period of time. Ultimately, that he may take his body up again in the resurrection, completing his work of salvation and ultimately pointing to the fact that salvation is a holistic thing that we will be bodily resurrected. It's not just a spiritual salvation. It's a salvation that we experience now that points to a full, complete salvation in our resurrection. Here's the key point here. We must remember the resurrection because of our tendency to forget. Now, I know those of us who are in here who are part of the church, we would say, yeah, we know Jesus is resurrected from the dead. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, oh, just remember this fact. He's saying, keep it in mind. It is significant for you in your life. It is significant for you in your ministry. That's so important for us as believers. Now, unbeliever, you are faced with the reality of do you trust that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that he died in your place for your sin? That's what God's word confronts you with this morning. You are not to forget it. You're not to just move on from it. You are to believe in who Jesus is and what he did for you. Believer, you are to continue to trust Jesus lives for you. He intercedes for you. The second thing we see in these verses is that the resurrection of Jesus changed how Paul viewed his suffering. Look at verse 9. He mentions, remember that, that Jesus is alive. Remember that Jesus was descended from David as Paul preached. It's for Paul's ministry. It's for the sake of the gospel, verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This phrase, for which I am suffering, you can translate it from the Greek, suffering hardship. It's sort of a general term that Paul's using to describe his difficulties here. He's in his second imprisonment now. His first imprisonment in Rome, he was in sort of house arrest. People could visit him freely. He does a lot of his writing and things like that. This is his second arrest leading up to his own execution. And he says he is chained. He is in chains, treated as a criminal. He's recognized, this word that we translate criminal there, it just means to be an evildoer or a lawbreaker. That's not who Paul was, and yet that is what he has experienced. That's the specific suffering that he's dealing with. And this is the end of his life. 
He's walked faithfully with Jesus. He's served Jesus faithfully, and this is the end that he's experiencing. We perhaps would have thought that he would be married with kids sitting around a table and everything going well as maybe he goes back into his back room and lays down one day for a nap and doesn't wake up. That's not what Paul is experiencing. And what that should show us then, your arrow, is that suffering is a part of the reality of life in a fallen world and it will continue until life's end. Whatever your end is, whatever your old age looks like, suffering will be a part of it. The best experience of life, you will experience suffering because we live in a fallen world. Often we think that suffering maybe is just part of a season of life, and it can be. It can be seasons of suffering, but it's on a, it's, it's on a downgrade. It's on a downslope. Suffering will increase. You can see that in Ecclesiastes 12, especially, where Solomon talks about the breakdown of our bodies. Something we cannot avoid. We live in a world affected by sin. We ourselves are fallen and subject to sin's effects. We are physically dying. How are you going to cope with that? How am I going to cope with that? You do what Paul did, and look at what Paul does. He contrasts his circumstances with what he knows to be true about God and his word. Now, if anyone had a right there to be frustrated with God, to be angry with God, I would think on some level it would be Paul. And yet what Paul does is he's encouraged by contrasting his own experience of suffering with truth about who God is and God's word. So what you see there, he says, he says he's in chains and yet the word of God is not chained. Or he says, I'm bound, but the word of God is not bound. We can have confidence in the power of God's word. Even as we age, even as we deal with the difficulties of life, even as we find ourselves in seasons of struggling and in suffering, we can recognize that God's word is powerful because Jesus is alive. Our suffering does not mean that God's word has failed. It has not. No matter what we are suffering, God's word remains powerful. And you see that again with what Paul says. The word of God is not bound. It's interesting there, that phrase where it says not bound, that's the ESV translation, that's also in the perfect tense. It's a true thing with ongoing implications, a completed thing. The word of God is not bound. It will never be bound. And so I love that you've got the two perfect tense for words that are used right there are that Jesus is alive or he's risen from the dead and the word of God is not bound. So why is the word of God not bound? Because Jesus is alive. So when you see this, be encouraged. We see how Paul is dealing with his own suffering. Paul has a savior his Savior, who had been with him and who had saved him and then been with him throughout his ministry, his Savior Jesus is alive and has not left him or forsaken him, even in the worst part of his suffering, even in the leading up to his own death, which he knows is imminent here. Here's the key point. We can live with hope in the midst of suffering because Jesus is alive. But it's in looking to that truth, it is in resting in that truth, in having confidence and trust in that truth, that is how we are able to properly look at our circumstances and properly remind ourselves of what is true. Preach the gospel to ourselves so that we do not believe lies, but we instead focus on the truth. Jesus loves us. Jesus is alive. Friend, Jesus brought you to salvation by the power of his word. And he's kept you and held you fast by the power of that word. When you came to know Jesus, maybe you were like me. 
I didn't think I was gonna be sinless, but I thought things were gonna get a lot better. I thought they were gonna get a lot better really fast. And I found out really quickly that I was still struggling with sin. I was still doing things that I, I've made vows and all sorts of things that I wasn't gonna ever do again. And I found myself doing those things. And what you come to find out the more you understand the truth of the gospel is that the same grace that saved you and justified you and declared you righteous, you're held and kept by that same grace. Because if we could lose our salvation, we absolutely would. If it was up to us, we would lose our salvation. It is not. It is up to Jesus. He holds us fast. And look at that. Paul knows that. He knows that Jesus has not left him or forsaken him in the midst of suffering. So believer, in your suffering, where is your hope? Are you trusting in the fact that Jesus is alive? That God's word is not bound? That it is powerful? Unbeliever, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Is it in yourself? Is it in, I don't know, the next election cycle? Is it in whatever, your 401k? That's not hope. That's not hope. It's a flower that fades It is only in the word of the Lord that points us to the reality of Jesus being alive that we have true hope. You know, for some people as they get older, death is their hope in some ways. Death just snuffs out in some ways all the misery. In scripture, death is our enemy. That's what we just sang. The reason why we sing and the reason why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 addresses death is because it is an enemy. It is an enemy. And that is why we gather this day, this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection victory over our enemy death. It is not your friend. It does not ultimately alleviate suffering in and of of itself because you will stand before your creator and you will have to do with him whether or not you've put your trust in him or whether you've turned your back on him. Here's our third point that we see from what Paul says here. The resurrection of Jesus is, changed how Paul carried out his vocation. Changed how Paul carried out his vocation. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us, um, last year we took some time and talked about the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of vocation. What it means is it means calling. Probably when you think of vocation, you think of a job. And, And that's not an improper use of that term, but when we're talking about vocation in the biblical sense, it's more than that. Okay? And it's not just like a job that you love. You know, there's that old saying of do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That was a lie when people told me that. Okay? I like what I do and, and I've had jobs that I enjoyed, but that was not true. Okay? A vocation is not just a job you like or something you like to give your life to. Biblically speaking, it is a calling. It's a calling. And Paul references his vocation here. Look at this. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When Paul was saved and came to know the Lord, the Lord set him apart for ministry, set him apart as an apostle to go and preach the gospel specifically to Gentiles. And so there is a sense in which Paul here, he understands that suffering is tied to vocation. And I need need us to see this. Because biblically speaking, when we talk about vocation, you need to understand that you are called first and foremost to be a Christian, to put your faith and trust in Jesus. But then you're also called based on the circumstances in life that you find yourself in. Are you a man? Are you a woman? That's part of your vocation. Are you a husband or wife? That's part of your vocation. Are you a son or daughter? That's part of your vocation. Are you a mother or father? That's part of your vocation. Are you an employer or an employee? Are you a neighbor? All of those are callings of God. Those, are, those other things are the way we live out our calling as a Christian. 
Those things, we, we, God calls us to serve others in those things. And so Paul, his understanding of Jesus being alive changed the way he understood his vocation. He says, verse 10, it's, it's an inference from what he said before. It's inferred from it. It follows from it. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He's willing to endure suffering because this is God's calling on his life. And I think we need, to, we need to think about that because you need to recognize your arrow there. This, Jesus is the one who calls and commissions us to serve others for his glory. Who you are, the giftings that you've been given, the situations in life that God has called you to, those are specific callings. You are commissioned to serve in those things. As Christians, we have a great commission Go forth, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. That is your calling. That is your vocation. But it is worked out in different ways based on what your other vocations are. And many times we want to separate those things and see, well, that's another work. Yes, God's called me to do that, but I've just got to get through this day with my kids schooling them or I've just got to deal with this issue in my marriage. And we miss that those things are tied together. And that Paul here is thinking of salvation in terms of people coming to believe the gospel, but it's also the holistic view of salvation. We recognize, theologically, we look at salvation kind of in three different ways. There's the initial work of salvation, justification, where we put our faith and trust in Jesus, and we're united to him, and we're declared righteous. Then there's the work of salvation that God does in us where he brings out that truth of our justification in our experience. We call that sanctification. That process goes on until either the Lord returns for us or we die to go be with him. And then that work of salvation is completed in our glorification. Your calling is to minister to others and see all of those things. It's to speak the gospel to those who do not know it. It is to then encourage and build up in the faith those who do believe. Your spouse, your parents, your kids, your neighbors, the people you work with. I think sometimes we focus so much on I need to share the gospel with this person and and that can be true. That's a part of our calling and we miss the importance of building up those who are around us that God has called us to love, that God has called us to serve, to encourage their faith, to see them built up and encourage themselves, see them encouraged in the faith. The goal is that they would obtain salvation, first by initial trust, but then in growth, and then ultimately see them on to the place of completion in their glorification. That is hard work. Parents, are you here? And it's hard to raise kids. Grandparents, are you here? Husbands, wives, marriage is difficult. It involves difficulty. So here's the question. In in going back to our initial questions about life, is any of this worth it? Young person that's here, your siblings, they're hard to deal with sometimes. Do you just get to be unkind to them or dismiss them? Or or maybe if you're a child, your parents discourage you sometimes. Do you just get to be defiant and disrespectful towards them? Or if you're here and you're married, your spouse is absolutely hard to deal with at times. Do you just get to dismiss them and visit the difficulty upon them that they visit upon you? Or maybe where you work, your coworkers are difficult or your boss is difficult. Do you just get to treat them the way that they treat you? I need you to see that Paul sees a connection between suffering in life and vocation. 
And that the reality that Jesus is alive changes the way we suffer, ultimately in our vocations. Jesus is alive, and so you can be a child in a different way. You can love your brothers and sisters. You can honor your parents. You can be a a spouse in a different way. You can forgive the sins of your spouse, even when they didn't ask for them. You can seek forgiveness when you've sinned against your spouse because Jesus, your Savior, is alive. That changes everything. Every vocation in a fallen world is going to require the enduring of suffering, but the enduring of suffering knowing Jesus is alive is a completely different proposition than just having to grit your teeth and bear difficulty. Jesus is alive and that changes things, especially when we think about our future. Your next arrow there. We can endure difficulty in the present when we consider our future glorification, our glorification. Again, Paul has this forward-looking picture. Eternal glory is ahead of us because Jesus is alive. He's gone before us. He's been resurrected, and therefore we ourselves await our resurrection. Even as we live now experiencing difficulty in our vocations. But here's the key thing. Because Jesus is alive, we don't just say, it's not like Jesus is resurrected and says, all right, now go serve in the ways that I've called you to, and I'll be back at some point to get you. He's with us. The reason why it changes how we serve in our vocation is because Jesus' power, his resurrection power, the same power that raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's been given to us now. And so it changes then how we love and serve others in our vocations. That's the key point there. We can serve joyfully and faithfully in our vocations in the resurrection power of Jesus. So son, daughter, husband, wife, mother, father, employer, employee, neighbor, Christian. How are you serving? Are you just not serving because it's hard? Are you constantly experiencing frustration? Are you willing to recognize that Jesus has said, trust me? Maybe the difficulty and frustration you're experiencing is because Jesus is trying to get you to see you need to rely upon him and trust him. Let him serve through you, not you trying to do it all on your own. There is hope for us in our vocations as we look towards our future. Now, unbeliever, I would ask you, what is your purpose in all this? Are you just like everybody else out there in the world trying to build your own identity, trying to build your own sense of things? That is shifting sand. It will come out from underneath you. An identity you embrace now, you'll have another one at some point because there's no fixed identity True identity is found ultimately in Jesus. Two concluding thoughts. The first is this. Simply, Jesus is alive. I'm not sure if I've said that enough this morning. Jesus is alive. And I need you to hear these words. These, the book of Revelation is very meaningful to me, which sounds weird. It sounds weird. I get that. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, it's very meaningful to me. The Lord used it very much in my own conversion. And uh, the account at the beginning of Revelation is John sort of giving his own experience of seeing Jesus in his resurrected glory. And I need you to see that this is so deeply personal in the way Jesus does this because it recalls an incident that happened in John's own life. John, who was with Jesus, he was part of Jesus' inner circle. And uh, at a key point in Jesus' ministry, Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up to this mountain and they see Jesus' glory revealed. They see him transfigured. And they are overwhelmed by that glory, and they fall down on their faces before him. 
And I can't remember which one of the Gospels, I forgot to check and see which one, but it says that he lays his hand on them and tells them not to be afraid. He raises them up. And that's where Peter didn't know what to do, and he's like, oh, let's just build a house for you and Moses and Elijah. Okay? So John had this experience of seeing Jesus in his glory, being overwhelmed, and then Jesus reaching down and touching him. Look at this from Revelation. Jesus, this is John seeing a vision. He sees this first part of the vision. It describes uh, this son of man figure, and it's just overwhelming, and it's glory and power. And he's overwhelmed to the point that it says this, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. See the personal touch, but then the willingness to speak powerfully. You have compassion here, but you have power. John should fall at his feet as though dead. Because John understands that he is a sinner in the presence of the holy and righteous God in the person of his Savior, Jesus, in his resurrected glory. John, John's reaction is correct. See, though, the compassion of Jesus. But then notice what Jesus says. If you are here and you are skeptical about who Jesus is, you need to hear who Jesus says that he is and the power that he has. Perhaps your view of Jesus is what you learned in vacation Bible school, and it's a felt board picture of Jesus, where he's very nice and very kind, and he is those things. He is compassionate. But Jesus is God become a man, and he is raised in power and glory. He is the God who created all things. And so look at what he says. I am the first and the last and the living one. Those are statements of his divinity. He was there at the beginning. He'll be there at the end. And he always has been. And yet, that identity as God is tied to his humanity. He took on humanity that he might come into our world and die in the place of sinners like you and me and like John. He says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Reference to his resurrection. This is who Jesus is now. When he comes back, he will not be a humble Galilean peasant. He will be God Almighty, still sharing humanity, but coming to rule and reign. And we will have to do with him. And so he, he's so compassionate to John, and yet he speaks powerfully. And look at what he says in light of his resurrection. I have the keys of death and of Hades. That is authority. That's the imagery. Kids, when your parents throw you the keys to the car for the first time, they're giving you some authority. You go, you're in charge of that vehicle. Jesus goes before his people into death. He conquers death, is raised from the dead, and the imagery here is that he has the keys of death and the place of the dead. Death is defeated. Jesus is alive now, and therefore he can give life to all those who come to him. Who those who, like John, bow before him and recognize who he is and place their faith and trust in him. Death is not the ultimate authority. Jesus is. Jesus has victory over our great enemy of death. And for those who know him, we will live with him forever in eternity. Jesus is alive. 
Second thing, we will be made alive with him forever. This is for us who are believers. We will be made alive with him forever. Last two verses of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Friends, this is the promise that we who are not glorious will be made fit to be in God's glorious presence. It's the promise that we who are sinful will stand forgiven in a state of blamelessness. Are you blameless now? I'm not. That will be our experience in Jesus' presence. And look at our response to this. Great joy. That's a way to render this verb, this Greek, uh, this Greek uh, term that really means like expressive joy. It's not just the joy of sitting there smiling. It's like bodily expression of joy in his presence. That is what we await because Jesus, our Savior, is alive. He died in our place. He's raised from the dead because death could not hold him. Friends, Jesus, our Savior, is alive. This is truth for us collectively, but it's truth for you personally. It's truth for me personally. And I love this in the resurrection accounts. Jesus is raised from the dead, ultimately, that sinners might come to him and that the church might be created and all these things. But when you go back into those gospel accounts, what do you see? Mary at the tomb, and he speaks her name. He says, Mary, and she recognizes him. He appears to the apostles, and Thomas, who had doubted, he invites Thomas to come and, tr- and touch him, touch his hands, touch his side. He's the same one who goes to Peter, who had denied him three times, and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says it three times. He restores Peter. He's the one who put his hand on John's shoulder and touched him. Your Savior, Jesus, is alive, believer. Unbeliever, Jesus would be your Savior. He would invite you to put your trust in him, to believe in who he claimed to be and what he has done for you. Friends, on this Resurrection Sunday, we recognize together these truths that are of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. May God encourage our hearts with these things, even as we live through seasons of suffering and difficulty. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to hear these things. Lord, we know that there are people around the world who have not heard the good news about Jesus. Thank you that you have been so gracious and merciful to us. We were undeserving to hear this good news. So, Father, thank you that we've heard it this morning, and may it encourage us. Father, I do pray for any here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, that they would ask questions, maybe that they would come and talk to me or one of the elders or whatever, Father, that you would do to bring them to understand how much Jesus loves them and what he's done for them. For those of us who are here, Lord, who are in seasons of difficulty, I pray that the reality of Jesus being alive would encourage their hearts. I pray that they would find his grace sufficient in whatever difficulties are going on in their callings. Father, I pray for sons and daughters. I pray for mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, neighbors, employees, employers, Lord. Would you show us your grace? Would you use us in these situations, in these relationships? Father, would you grant healing in these things? But Lord, ultimately, would you have us look 
towards Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who's gone before us in suffering and who will walk with his people because he's their good shepherd. Thank you this morning, Lord, now that we can respond in singing and that we can see the gospel pictured in baptisms. Be honored in the rest of our service, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.